Um, all right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We're continuing uh, throughout the, through the Gospel of Luke. And um, today, we're going to be looking at uh, the story of, of two women, two women um, who have uh, a need of Jesus and of his healing power. And the two women have a lot of similarities, but there are also some noteworthy differences. And what we're going to look at, what we're going to consider as we look at this passage is that Jesus treats us differently because he loves us the same. Jesus treats us differently because he loves us the same. And perhaps you have experienced a situation in which you're looking at someone and considering their life, uh, their relationship with God, their blessings, their, their circumstances, and wondering why they're receiving blessings, why Jesus is, is treating them in a particular way, and he's not doing the same for you. Uh, today, we're, we're not really sort of talking about why, does, why do good things happen to, to uh, bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? There are a lot of different passages that deal with that question. Uh, the Psalms and the prophets. In fact, uh, Habakkuk, which, uh, which um, Elder Tittle went through, deals with that question. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is not good people and bad people but good people and good people. Why does God treat other Christians differently from us? And if you're, you know, if you're a child, perhaps you've wondered uh, why your sibling maybe gets treated differently. Maybe they got a Christmas present that you really wanted. Or maybe they get to do something with mom and dad that you really wanted. And you get a different Christmas present, but it's not necessarily the one that you want. Or, um, or they have a friend, a special friend, and you don't have anyone like that, and you're wondering why? Uh, why is my life different? Why is God blessing me in different ways? Um, or if you're, you know, maybe a little bit older, maybe you're you're looking at your best friend and wondering why they're starting on the track team or the basketball team, or why is it that they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you don't? Or if you're a college student, maybe you wonder why. Your, your, uh, another believer got a scholarship that you didn't get. Uh, or as you get older, perhaps you, you get married, and then you, you try to have children, and you struggle for years and years and years, and you wonder, why is it that I am having so much trouble getting pregnant? Why are we having so much trouble having children? Why are we suffering with, uh, with this uh, affliction, and yet other Christians are having children without any difficulty, right? Or, or perhaps as you get older, you, you wonder why is it that, that this other person is, is succeeding in their job or is, or is it getting a promotion or, um, or experiencing just a, a wonderful life? Or as you get even older, perhaps you wonder why am I experiencing this physical malady or why am I having to deal with aging parents who are putting so many demands on me because of their health issues? Or why is it despite everything that I did, my children have walked away from the faith and yet I look at other believers who are maybe not as good parents or not as good Christians and yet their children seem to still be walking in the faith, right? We can, whatever life situation we're in, we can look around us and see how God is treating others differently from ourselves. Um, and, and all of those are sort of uh, material blessings. You might even ask yourself, 
right? Like, why am I struggling with this particular sin and I can't seem to, to gain any victory over it, and yet I look at other believers and they don't have other particular sin issues. Why is it that I was born into a family in which my parents weren't Christians, and yet I look at others and, uh, and they had the, the, the blessing and the benefit of a Christian upbringing, and so they're, they're sort of uh, starting off on a much further place. That's what we're going to be looking at today is that why does, does Jesus, in his relationship with us, treat us differently? And the reason that I think our passage teaches is it's not that Jesus treats us differently in spite of the fact that he loves us the same, but he treats us differently because of the fact that he, uh, that he loves us the same. So what we're going to do uh, today is we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 8 verses 40 through 56. And instead of reading through the entire passage and then uh, giving my sermon, we're going we're gonna to read through the passage and I'm going to sort of pause verse by verse and make some comments. Um, and then by the time we get through the passage, we'll be mostly done with the sermon. I tell you that because I don't want us to get like 20 minutes into the sermon. You're like, oh my goodness, he still hasn't finished the passage. How long is this going to go? Don't worry. By the time we finish reading through the passage, we will be mostly done with the sermon and we'll have some concluding uh, sort of points to make about what we have, uh, what we have studied uh, and what we've seen. But let me, let me pray for the preaching of God's word uh, first. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. You know, uh, we know that this is uh, your word to us to help us grow in our knowledge and love for you. Uh, and our knowledge uh, of ourselves as well. And we pray that you would use this time as we open up your word to study uh, what your servant Luke wrote about you, uh, that you would use it to edify us, to encourage us, um, to help us deepen our our love for you and for others. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of the other things I, I forgot to mention as I was sort of giving those examples, right, is that Perhaps you find yourself on the other side of that scenario, right? Perhaps sometimes you find yourself experiencing blessings that you're sort of ashamed of, right? You, you find yourself wondering, why is God blessing me in these particular ways? And other believers uh, who seem to be better, more righteous, more faithful, more deserving, aren't experiencing those blessings, Right, so wherever you sort of find yourself on that spectrum, I think our passage has something to say to us. So let's take a look. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 8, starting with the four, uh, verse 40. This is God's holy and inerrant word to us uh, because he is the God who speaks and his word is true and good and powerful. So Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. All right, let's pause there. So we're introduced, Luke introduces us to this 
uh, to this man, Jairus. And Luke tells us, Luke gives us specific details uh, about Jairus and, and the other uh, people in this story. Um, and what he tells us is that Jairus is a ruler. Man, this this uh, this is really going to drive me crazy here, but we'll just have to we'll just have to deal with it. Um, no, it's all right. It's all right. It'll keep me on my toes. Um, Jairus is a ruler, right? So what does that mean? What that means is that he was well respected within society. He he was, in other words, essentially at the top of the of the social food chain. Perhaps the priests. Um, and, and maybe the Pharisees would have been a little bit higher. But as a ruler of the synagogue, he would have been well-respected. He also probably would have been very wealthy, right? To be in that position probably indicated that he was wealthy. Um, he would have been believed to be someone who had a good relationship with God, who was, who was strong in the faith, who was very obedient, who was diligent to study the law and to do it. And I don't say believed to be, to, to sort of cast aspersions on him to imply that he wasn't, but simply to help us understand how the rest of the public, the rest of society would have viewed him. They would have viewed him as uh, as an important member of society, someone who probably had a very good relationship with God. He uh, he's a leader in the synagogue. He's wealthy. Um, he is someone who is faithful and diligent to obey God. Um, and and it we're told that he has this daughter, right? This daughter. Um, who is 12 years of age and she's dying. Now, what we don't know, but we'll learn very soon, is that this daughter is dying imminently, right? She is on death's door. And so Jesus is, is or sorry, Jairus is coming to Jesus. We can imagine that Jairus has heard about Jesus. He has perhaps heard rumors or stories about this rabbi who's been traveling throughout the land of Israel, who's perhaps performed miracles and and has taught with power and authority. You can imagine that Jairus is is coming to Jesus with one last glimmer of hope, right? His daughter is literally on death's door, and he comes to Jesus in the hopes that Jesus is able to heal his daughter. So let's continue on. Uh, with verse 43. As Jesus went, the people uh, pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So Luke pauses the story here of Jairus and introduces us to this woman, to this woman who has had this discharge of blood for 12 years. Years, twelve years. So, uh, what, what do we know about this woman? We can we can know that she would have been at the bottom of the social ladder. She would have been at the at the bottom of the social hierarchy, and and that would have been the case for at least three reasons. Okay, so first, um, the the first strike against her is simply the fact that she was a woman. Right within that society, within sort of Jewish culture at that time, women were not highly respected. In fact, most other Jewish rabbis and teachers would not even consider women uh, worthy to talk to because they weren't uh, teachable. Um, and and of course, what we see all throughout the Gospels, and in particular the Gospel of Luke, Jesus demonstrates a very, very, very different 
attitude and posture towards women. But regardless of, of Jesus's attitude and posture, right, the society as a whole would have looked at this woman and considered her um, not to be valuable simply by virtue of the fact that she was a woman. So that's the first strike against her. And then, of course, the second strike against her is that she has this flow of blood, right, this, this discharge. And, of course, this is not her, her monthly menstrual period. This is a, a, a continuous flow of blood. And what this would have meant is that this would have made her ritually unclean. So if you go back to the book of Leviticus and you study the, the, the laws of, of cleanness and uncleanness, uh, menstrual period would have made a woman unclean for, for, the, the, um, for that period of time. But then there was obviously a, after that a, an opportunity to go to the temple or the tabernacle to offer sacrifices to sort of perform the rites and the rituals that would have uh, made women clean again. But with this woman, uh, it's a conti- Luke tells us it's a continuous flow of blood, which means for 12 years she has been ritually unclean. Now, what that means is that anything, not only is she herself unclean, but anything she touched would be unclean. If she sat in a chair, the chair would be unclean. If she lay in a bed, the bed would become unclean. And if anyone sat in the chair after her, or if anyone lay in the bed with her or after her, they also would become unclean. This is what the the book of Leviticus lays out when it describes the laws concerning cleanness and uncleanness. So anything she touched would have been unclean. Anything anyone else touched would have been unclean. And furthermore, her uncleanness prevented her from entering into the temple, right? The presence of God being ritually unclean meant that she was separated from the presence of God. Um, furthermore, because, uh, because of this, she would have been socially ostracized. Uh, her uncleanness would have meant that people would not want to associate with her. It also probably means that she was either unmarried or divorced, right? Given the, the laws of Leviticus uh, with a, a 12-year flow of blood, even if she had been physically able to have sex, they probably would not have had sex because of the, of the um, uncleanness. Uh, so for 12 years... Um, if she had a husband, she would not have been able to have sex with him. And that probably in that culture was grounds for divorce. Okay, so, so she's probably either unmarried or divorced. Um, and so her, her flow of blood has caused complete isolation. Isolation from God, isolation from society, isolation from community. And so in a very, very real sense, even though she's not... Dying, even though this flow of blood, uh, we're not told that it's uh, sort of fatal or, or leading to death, she was as good as dead, right? Separated from God, separated from community. There was nothing for her uh, in life. And furthermore, the last strike against her was that she was utterly destitute. She had spent all of her money attempting to be healed and had, had nothing left. She was in complete poverty. And, that's, and all of that's even apart from just the physical discomfort of dealing with a continuous flow of blood. right? In a society that didn't have things like indoor sanitation and running water, uh, modern sanitary products. right? Imagine dealing with a flow of blood for 12 years 
in a culture that's highly uh, attuned to ritual cleanliness and uncleanliness and yet does not have the benefits uh, of technology that we have in our society today. Um, furthermore, uh, one of the things, you know, in, in order to provide for her, a, a woman who is either unmarried or divorced had very few uh, opportunities to provide for themselves. Um, and one of the few ways that a woman in such a situation could provide for, for, them, for herself was prostitution. And if you're here a number of weeks ago, I preached on, uh, on from Luke chapter 7, the, the woman, uh, the prostitute, and the Pharisee. Because of her condition, she probably didn't, wasn't even able to engage in prostitution. And so, as I said, in a very real sense, she has uh, experienced a form of death for 12 years. For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has experienced spiritual and social death. Uh, and that's one of the points of comparison, right, between these two women, right? Luke... Uh, uh, I believe that, that these two women really existed. This, this story really happened. But Luke is telling the story in a way that's, that's meant to highlight the similarities between these two women and the way Jesus treats them. And that's one of those points of similarity. So let's continue on uh, with verses 44 and 45. She came up behind him and, and touched the fringe of his garment And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power had gone out from me. So she comes up to Jesus. And again, we can imagine, like Jairus, that she sees Jesus as this last opportunity She has gone through every doctor. She has spent every penny that she could and has found no one who can heal her. And she hears of Jesus. And uh, and so this is her last uh, glimmer of hope. And and so she presses through and she touches Jesus' garment and is healed. And Jesus asks and says, who is it that touched me? And Peter responds. And of course, right, of course it's Peter. If there's ever anything dumb to say, Peter is the one who says it, right? Um, and, and yet, in this particular situation, we can sympathize with Peter, right? Like, Peter's not wrong, right? Luke has told us explicitly that it's a thick, dense crowd, that they're pressing elbow to elbow, right? And, and so Peter is real. I mean, uh, if you were there, maybe you wouldn't have said what Peter said, but you certainly would have been thinking it, right? So, uh, so you know, we've we got to be honest with ourselves that... that Peter actually has a point here, right? Um, uh, that, that what does Jesus mean, uh, who touched me? And of course, then Jesus, uh, right, Jesus explains, he says, someone touched me for I perceived that power has gone out of me, right? So Jesus isn't just talking about someone jostling up, but there, there is, there is a, a particular um, intentionality uh, to the way in which he was touched, and and uh, and he recognizes, he knows um, that this has caused healing uh, for the sake of the woman. So, verse thirty-seven. Uh, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now, what's interesting um, 
is that in verse, uh, uh, let's see, uh, uh, verse 45. Yeah, I, I missed it there for a second. Verse 45, everyone denies it, right? Verse 45, Jesus says, who touched me? And Luke tells us that everyone denied it, presumably the woman herself, right? Presumably, at least initially, the woman denied touching Jesus. And yet then when Jesus responds to Peter and indicates that he knows that someone has touched him, for he perceives that power has gone out of him, the woman recognizes that she is now known, right? That that Jesus wasn't just making a a generic comment about uh, the crowds pressing in on him, but that that he knows she touched him because he can sense that she was healed. Um, and, uh, and so Jesus asks this question. I don't think Jesus is asking this question because he doesn't know the answer, right? If he can sense that power has gone out of him, right? And the woman herself indicates that she, she is not hidden, that she's known, right? Jesus, I, I think what's going on here is not that Jesus is, is genuinely uncertain about who this is, right? I think what this is, uh, like is is in Genesis 3 where God says to Adam where are you and did you eat of the tree of which I told you not to do God knew the answer right God didn't need Adam to tell him what had happened similarly Genesis 4 where God says to 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 Cain you know where is your brother right God didn't need Cain to tell him what had happened to Abel he knew what had happened to Abel But God was inviting Adam in that situation and Cain in in Genesis 4 to come to him to confess what had happened. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He is giving an opportunity for the woman to come to him and to to tell him, to uh, admit to him what has happened. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, why does Jesus do this? Right? This would have been horrifically... Uh, shameful and embarrassing for this woman, right? All I, most of us don't enjoy public speaking, right? Anytime there's a survey, uh, you know, public speaking is, is more uh, terrifying than death, right? Which means that at any given uh, moment, someone would prefer to be dead than to be speaking in public. Um, I, I think we, we can all sort of, most of us understand the, the anxiety of, of getting up in front of a crowd and speaking, um, and, and this situation is even more than that, right? This is a woman in a society that doesn't value woman, uh, women. This is, this is a woman who has this flow of blood that's made her ritually unclean, which means that every single person that she touched from the outskirts of the circle to Jesus is now also ritually unclean. Okay? We've all been through a pandemic. We sort of understand something like this. You all, you all remember back to the early days of the pandemic when we were all in lockdown, but we could still go to the grocery store. And you'd be in the grocery store, and you'd get like a scratch in your throat, and you're like, please don't cough, please don't cough, please don't cough, right? But you can't help it, and so you cough, and you're like looking around. Um, hoping no one sees you, or conversely, someone coughs next to you, and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, like, uh, 
you know, I, I've got to go to the, oh, oh, I forgot something on the other aisle, I've got to run over to the other aisle. Or, or a little bit further on when, when things were opening up and, and we could gather together, but, but it was still um, very concerning, right? You know, you go to a party or a, or a social gathering, and then the very next day you test positive, and you're like, oh, you know, now I've got to contact everyone who was at the party, tell them that I tested positive, which means they were probably exposed, right? There's, there's, there's this sort of shame um, of the inconvenience and the risk that we have, we have imposed on everyone else. And you can imagine this woman wanting to slip away quietly. But instead, Jesus exposes her in front of the entire crowd, right? To, to say nothing of the, of, of the shame that she would have experienced because of her malady, right? A very personal, intimate, uh, intimate affliction that she now is exposed uh, to the entire crowd for. Why did Jesus do this? He could have simply allowed her to slip away quietly. He could have known what had happened. And just let her go. But he doesn't do that. He calls her into the public eye. We're going to answer that question uh, towards the end. But for now, think about that. Why would Jesus do something like that? So we continue. Uh, oh, and, and notice, I mean, Luke even uh, emphasizes this fact. He says uh, that Jesus declared in the presence of all the people. Right? Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is, is calling public attention to this woman. Let's continue um, with verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. You can imagine being in Jairus' shoes, right? And you, you have this last glimmer of hope that perhaps this, this rabbi, Jesus, is going to be able to heal your daughter. And you know that her situation is dire. And so you come and you find Jesus and and, and amazingly, he agrees to go with you. And so you're walking towards your house, thinking every second about your daughter lying in bed on the edge of death. And you could probably imagine that Jairus wanted to run. Maybe he wanted to drag Jesus and say, we've got to go. But out of respect, they're walking along in the crowd. And then Jesus stops and has this very bizarre interaction with this woman. Right? And you can imagine thinking to yourself, this woman has lived with this affliction for 12 years. She can live with it for 12 more hours. My daughter is on the verge of death. Why are you stopping to talk to this woman? And so you can imagine the fear and the anxiety of Jairus as he, uh, as he waits for Jesus to finish his interaction with this woman. Um, and of course, when... Uh, when Jesus' interaction with the woman finishes, you get the news that you've been dreading, which is that your daughter is now dead and your last glimmer of hope is crushed. And yet Jesus comments to Jairus and he says, um, 
your daughters, uh, he says, um, do not fear, only believe. Now, recall what Jesus said to the woman. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Uh, in the Greek, faith and believe share the same root. They're essentially the same word. Okay, We, we don't see that in English because we have two different uh, words that we translate. But this is the same word in the Greek. right? So Jesus is essentially saying the same thing uh, to Jairus. He's saying, look, you have just witnessed this woman experiencing my healing power through her faith. Have faith that I can do the same for you. Okay? That's what he's saying. He's saying, have faith. Now, of course, healing a woman of a flow of blood and raising someone from the dead are different things. We know that. Jairus would have known that, right? So it's not as though um, uh, this, is, this is obvious that Jesus would be able to do this. Uh, Jesus is asking Jairus a big thing. He's saying, you know, have faith that I can raise your daughter from the dead. Um, and of course, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us whether or not Jairus uh, does have faith, but they proceed on. They continue uh, on walking towards Jairus's house. House, And so we, we continue with verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened." Now, what's interesting about this is that Jesus has traveled to Jairus' house with, with all of his disciples, with this whole crowd. And yet, when he finally goes in, he only takes three of his 12 apostles. He doesn't take the crowd. He doesn't take all 12 of his apostles. He just takes three, Peter, James, and John, uh, and the parents, right? And uh, and so what Jesus is doing is he is... He is um, uh, performing this miracle in private, right? He doesn't want people there to witness it. He doesn't want people there to see it. He doesn't want people to know about it. And in fact, as we see right at the end of the passage, he explicitly tells the parents uh, to tell no one about it. And yet, of course, the crowd has been there. The crowd has come. They all know uh, where they're going and why. Um, and there's, there's, a, a crowd, there's a crowd at the house that's mourning for the daughter, right? Friends and relatives of Jairus and his wife would have been there to mourn for this daughter. And Jesus tells them that she's only sleeping. Now, again, it's worth asking ourselves, um, why, why, would Jesus, why would Jesus say that, right? Why would Jesus tell the crowd, tell the people outside that she was only sleeping, Okay. And I think as, as we look at the story, as Luke tells it to us, I think it's fairly obvious that she was dead and that, she, and that Jesus did raise her from the dead. Uh, notice in verse, um, verse uh, 55, it says her spirit returned to her, right? Seems fairly clear that the, this little girl was actually dead and Jesus did actually perform a resurrection from the dead. And Jesus saying she's asleep, that's not wrong, right? That's a, that can be a euphemism for death. Paul uses the exact same euphemism in 1 Corinthians 11 um, 
where, where sleep is a euphemism for death. But why would Jesus say that, right? What's going on here? The, the, the people are so convinced, right? They know that she's dead. They're so convinced that when Jesus tells them that she's just sleeping, she's not dead, they mock him. They laugh at him, right? This is, you know, there's no indication that they had second, you know, second doubts, second, that they had doubts or they second guessed themselves. Um, so why would, he, why would he say that, right? Well, I think the reason is because Jesus knew that in a few minutes, that little girl was going to walk out that door alive. He knew that he was going to go in there and he was going to raise her from the dead and she was going to come out alive. And what he's doing is he is giving an explanation to the crowd that they can latch on to. So imagine if you're one of the crowd and you see that little girl come out, out, of the, out of the room. You have one of two options in terms of what you can believe, right? You can either believe that she was truly dead and that she was truly raised from the dead, which would be an incredible miracle, right? Very noteworthy um, and would have attracted a lot of attention and, and conversation and so on and so forth. Or... You could believe that you were mistaken in the fact that she was dead and that she did come out uh, and, then, and that she did wake up, right? Two options in terms of what you would believe if you were in that scenario. And what Jesus is doing is he is leading them, he is guiding them, he is giving them uh, a pointer to the second interpretation, Okay. So despite the fact that I think the text indicates to us that she was dead and Jesus did raise her from the dead, he's creating a context in which the crowd is going to assume, in fact, that she was simply asleep and that he simply woke her from her sleep. And why is that? We're going we're gonna to answer that question in a second. One of the things I want us to notice, though, about these two, uh, these two women Right, is that for both of them, the, the, the access to Jesus' healing power is the same. Right? It's faith. Right? Their faith, the woman's faith and Jairus' faith, are what uh, give them access to Jesus' healing power. Right? Jesus loves them the same, and their access to him is the same. Their, their, uh, their um, access to his healing power is the same, despite them being in very different social settings. Right? The requirement was the same, despite the fact that the woman was on the bottom of the social and religious totem pole, and Jairus is at the top of the social and religious totem pole. All that's required of them, and all that's required of us, is faith. Right? It's not as though Jairus had earned Jesus' healing power through his service in the synagogue, through being wealthy, through being a man, through studying God's law, through you know, worshiping in the temple. Right? Jairus didn't have any greater right or claim to Jesus' power, to Jesus' blessings, to a relationship with Jesus than the woman did. Right? And, and Luke wants us to see this, right? particularly because within that culture, that would have been controversial. Right? The, the, the people of the day, the, the, the Jews and, and even the Gentiles, would have looked at Jairus as someone who deserved God's blessing because of who he was, because of uh, his service in the synagogue. And they would have looked at the woman 
and believed that she was under God's judgment for her, you know, because of her flow of blood, that, that, um, that the flow of blood was God's judgment for some other sin, right? Um, and what Luke is showing us, what Jesus is showing us uh, in the way that he deals with these and what Luke is showing us by telling us, uh, recording this for us, is that it doesn't matter if you are uh, righteous and faith, you know, faithful and obedient and, and wealthy and, and well-respected and, and, and all of these other things, that your access to Jesus' love, to Jesus' power, to relationship with Jesus is the same. It is simply faith. And you don't have a greater claim to Jesus' blessings simply because of who you are or what you have done. And that ought to change how we think about ourselves. It ought to change how we think about others as well. We don't have a right to look down on others um, for various different sort of social or cultural or religious sort of ways of, of, uh, of uh, evaluating people, right? We, we sort of um, mentally go through uh, steps to sort of consider how valuable people are and, and often that's subconscious. And the fact of the matter is that we all come to Jesus equally on the same footing. We all need to have faith in him. And if we have faith in him, we will experience his love, his power, his acceptance, a relationship with him. So that's, that's one of the things that we see here. One of the other things that we see here, right, is we consider how Jesus treated these, these two women very, very, very differently. Right? He healed them both. There are a lot of similarities, right? Jairus comes to, to Jesus uh, trembling and falls down at his feet. The woman comes to Jesus trembling and falls down at his feet. The, the, the girl was uh, alive for 12 years. Uh, the, the woman um, had a 12-year flow of blood. But there are a lot of similarities that Luke draws out of the story in order to, to highlight um, the similarities. And yet there are stark, startling differences, Right, the woman's uh, uh, the woman's miracle occurred in private, secretly, and yet Jesus exposes it for everyone to see. Right, her story starts out in secret, in private, as she slips through the crowd unnoticed in order to touch Jesus's garment and presumably slip out unnoticed. Right, her story starts in secret. And Jesus brings it out into the public. The little girl's story starts in public, in front of the whole crowd. They're all traveling to this house, and yet it ends in secret, in private, with just the little girl, Peter, James, and John, and her parents, and Jesus. And Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. Right? And so there's some noteworthy and, and startling differences um, and, and so it's worth asking, why does Jesus treat them differently? You can imagine, if, if, you, if you can put yourselves in the shoes of the, of the woman with the flow of blood, how terrifying, how shameful, how shocking, uh, how, how anxiety-producing it would have been to be exposed by Jesus in that setting. And we're told that she's terrified, right, that she comes trembling, so why does Jesus do that? And I think the reason, the reason why Jesus heals the little girl in private is because what the little girl needed was not to be the object of speculation and rumor and excitement. What that little girl needed was to be given food and to have her parents with her. 
That's what a 12-year-old girl needs in that setting. She doesn't need to be poked and prodded by a crowd that's marveling at the power of Jesus to raise uh, someone from the dead. She needed the love and comfort of a good bowl of soup or whatever it was and her parents. But what the woman needed was not simply physical healing. She needed physical healing. But the physical ailment that she suffered under had caused all sorts of other problems in her life. Right? Her social and religious ostracization. And what the woman needed was social and religious restoration. Right? Jesus could have allowed her to heal herself and slip away privately. But given the nature of her malady, how would anyone know? How would anyone know that she had been healed? Certainly no one's going to check, right? And she could tell them, she could say, yeah, I've been healed, but would you believe it? Right? If this woman had suffered for 12 years with a continuous flow of blood, would you believe her when she told you that she had suddenly and miraculously been healed? What she needed was more than just physical healing. What she needed was to be publicly vindicated in the eyes of all of society by Jesus for her faith. And that's exactly what Jesus does. As painful, as difficult as it was for Jesus to draw her out publicly, that's what she needed. Right? She needed to be vindicated so that, uh, so that she would be welcomed back into society, so that she would be welcomed back into the temple, so that she would be uh, uh, praised and valued for her faith. Right? Jesus is doing for her as painful as it would have been for that woman. She is doing for her what she needs. And so for us, right, when we consider our lives and our situations and we look at how Jesus treats us differently than others, right, it can be hard, it can be difficult, it can be painful, it can be confusing and anxiety-producing, it can be all of these things, but we know and we trust that Jesus treats us the way he treats us because he loves us. Right, that Jesus treats us differently because he knows who we are and he knows what we need and he gives us exactly what we need in order to follow him and to grow in our relationship with him. Right, Jesus wants to give us life in abundance. That's what, that's what he says in John's gospel. Right, that, that we, uh, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And we are all individuals. We are all unique before God and our needs and, and, uh, and desires are different. And so Jesus treats us differently because he loves us the same. So when you look at your own life and you're tempted to feel as though Jesus doesn't love you as much as someone else because he's treating them differently than he's treating you, remember that that is not true. That Jesus loves you the same and he treats you differently because he loves you the same. The other thing, the other last thing I think we see from this passage, right, is that um, Jairus didn't need to, to grow in social status. 
Jairus didn't need to be known as someone with deep and profound faith, so, you know, so strong that he was able to, to get his daughter raised from the dead. Right? Jairus was already at the top of the social and religious totem pole. But the woman needed to, be, to have her uh, reputation raised within society. And so Jesus uh, makes Jairus' miracle private, but the woman's miracle public, because she needed to be vindicated uh, in front of society. Let me, uh, let me close us in prayer here. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for this story. I pray that you would use this, this story uh, of how you loved and cared for uh, this woman and this little girl and Jairus, uh, and, and that you did so differently, uh, but still and always on the basis of faith. I pray that you would help us um, to be encouraged by that, to recognize um, that you love us, that you care for us, um, that if we have faith in you, we have access to you, to your power, to a relationship with you, um, and that you treat us differently, not in spite of the fact that you love us, but because you love us, and that you love us the same. Um, I pray that that would be a, a comfort to us uh, in the midst of trouble and sorrow and suffering and difficulty and and unanswered prayers and hurt and frustration and confusion. But that would also temper our pride when we experience blessings uh, and, and, and feel as though you are uh, blessing us abundantly. Lord, we give you thanks uh, that you are a God who heals, um, that you came uh, to demonstrate your power, not simply over physical ailments, but even over death itself. I pray that that would be a comfort and encouragement to us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.